Well, it is always uh, a wonderful opportunity um, to, um, you know, every pastor loves to preach. That's just, you, you, you have to, you know, for, for the number of years that you do this, you, 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 better, you better like it. Um, but it's also enjoyable to share this, this platform, this opportunity for others to share the word. And so um, it really fit. Uh, and um, this morning we had about, I don't know, at least eight uh, students from NMU that were with us today. And, um, and, and Mike is going to come and share just some of, of what that means to be that church that, um, that really believes in reaching the campus. And so I want you to welcome Mike as he comes and he shares here this morning. Thank you. Good morning. It's great to see everybody. And thank you, Pastor Kevin, for the invitation to speak. He's, he's telling the truth. Pastors love to preach. So I, I, I never take it lightly when I get an invitation to, uh, to pinch hit. Um, it's, uh, it's always an honor to stand up here and declare the word of the Lord to his people. And I believe he has a great message for each one of us today. I think the, as, as preachers, the first sermon we preach is to ourselves uh, as we're preparing through the week. And uh, the, as, as this week went on and I was praying and processing and reading and thinking, I, I became more and more excited about this. And I realized I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. And, uh, and you get to all listen in. I think that's, that's kind of how that works. So thank you, Pastor Kevin. Thank you, Silver Creek Church, for being that church that loves our university. Um, your faithful and generous support of our work on campus through the years will yield and has yielded eternal fruit. You will meet people in heaven who will be there because you prayed and because you gave and because you welcomed. Um, last school year, as you can imagine, was very difficult with COVID restrictions in place. We weren't allowed on campus for most of the school year. But despite all that, God moved and we saw more students come to faith in Jesus last year than in any previous year. So, and, and that happened because uh, we were obedient to go and you were obedient to send us. And then God does his thing. It's, it's uh, you know, God's faithfulness intersects with our faith, and he does amazing things. So uh, my name is Mike Murray, my wife Nikki. Um, in, in, in the first service, I, I earned points by saying, soon to be Dr. Nikki. She's, uh, she's finishing up her, her doctorate in the next month or two. Uh, Nikki and I have served for the past six years as directors of Chi Alpha Christian Fellowship at NMU. So officially, we stand here and represent Chi Alpha, which is the uh, um, university ministry of the Assemblies of God. But in a broader way, we represent all of the Christian ministries that, uh, that are on Northern's campus. So this church is 30 years old this fall. And through those years, Silver Creek, before that, when we were called Faith Assembly, we welcomed dozens and dozens and dozens of university students through those years, uh, many from Chi Alpha, but also uh, many from InterVarsity and His House and, and Crew and others. Many campus ministries have invested in the lives of 
students and alumni who have considered Silver Creek their church home. Um, not, not to mention all of the NMU faculty and staff and retirees and others. So Nikki and I wear the Chi Alpha uniform proudly, but I also want to honor those who serve and have served in other ministries. Uh, we have a new InterVarsity director couple on campus, uh, Nate and Emily Musser. You might have met them over the previous several weeks uh, here uh, at Silver Creek. They're, they're directors at Northern and Lake State. Um, Sam Galvin served for many years uh, at, at his house. So if you see them uh, around in the coming weeks, be sure to thank them as well for their personal investment on campus. When, when you work in campus ministry, those of you who have led small groups, you know this as well, you're always on the lookout for good icebreaker questions. Like that's, that's how I operate. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for questions. What can I ask to put these people at ease? Uh, what can I ask to help them open up? Uh, how can I help us as a group get to know each other? And one of my go-to questions, especially early in the fall semester, is very simple yet profound. The question is this. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? It's a very important question. Now, I've asked this question for years, leading small groups, and I've never heard the correct answer. Which is? Chocolate. Okay. The correct answer is D, all of the above. What's your favorite flavor? All of them. So uh, you, you don't ask parents to identify their favorite child, at least not in public, and you'd never ask an ice cream lover to pick just one flavor. So in, in a similar vein, it feels like every time I, I, I get up to teach from the Bible, I say something like, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, or this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And some of our Chi Alpha students have kindly pointed out that I say that a lot. Uh, you know, they ask, can this be true all the time? And apparently, yes, it can. So with that being said, the section of Scripture we're looking at this morning is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, it's true, it's, it's a re remarkable chapter for a number of reasons. Uh, it gives us a glimpse of who Jesus is and his great love for us. Uh, it, it shows us some deep truths about his mission in the world, what he saw uh, when he looked at uh, what he was called to do. And it gives us, university ministers and student leaders alike, a blueprint for proclaiming the good news and making disciples on campus. And beyond that, it shows all of us how to join Jesus on his mission, even if we don't work on a college campus. So our, our passage today is in John chapter 4. The Gospel of John is one of the four mini biographies of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John was written by the Apostle John, who was quite possibly Jesus' closest friend on earth. Uh, the Gospels kind of point to that. So this is a first-hand eyewitness narrative written by a man who lived and worked and walked with Jesus just about every day over 
a three-year period. So John chapter 4 opens, like the other Gospels, 2,000 years ago. And in this chapter, Jesus and his disciples are in, uh, in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea. That's where they are when the, the chapter begins. And Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God with, with real authority and miraculous signs, and a movement has started to grow around him. He's becoming a big deal. But at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus decides to go to his home region in the north, an area called Galilee. And the most direct route to Galilee from where they are in Jerusalem is directly north through an area called Samaria. We'll, we'll come back to the significance of this and, and talk about Samaria. Uh, but basically, the Jewish people at the time, and Jesus and his disciples were Jews, the, the Jewish people at the time considered Samaria to be unfriendly territory, maybe even enemy territory. So uh, let's pick up the story in uh, verse 5 of John chapter 4, and then we'll break down three truths that we can learn from the example of Jesus. It's a great story, so I want to read a big section of it. Uh, I know we live, in, uh, we live in an age of shrinking attention spans, so I'm going to take a, a few minutes to read through this narrative in, in John chapter 4. And as I read, try to picture the scene. You know, maybe you've seen um, see films in the past depicting the life of Jesus, so you know what the landscape kind of looks like. It's, it's dry and dusty and you know, in sepia tones, you can, you can picture this scene. So starting in verse 5 of John chapter 4, eventually he, Jesus, came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "'Please give me a drink.'" How's that for an icebreaker? He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Verse 9, we're going to spend time looking at verse 9 later on. The woman was surprised. Pay attention to that word. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. She's taking him literally. Verse, chapter, uh, verse 16, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. 
So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And I imagine Jesus taking a dramatic pause here and then saying, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked. It's like the woman was surprised. The disciples are shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? The woman left her jar, her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Dropping down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. As Pastor Kevin likes to say, that right there is worth the price of admission. Like just listening to that story and seeing Jesus in action. This dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is the longest one-on-one conversation in all of scripture. So it's, it's like there's a, a flashing light above this thing saying, pay attention to this, because there's a reason that John gave that much space to it. But even beyond that, when we dig into some cultural clues, some of the historical background, language, geography, we see how revolutionary this conversation really is. So on the surface, it's a picture of Jesus reaching out to a solitary individual with a message of hope and forgiveness and promise. It's a microcosm of what he did throughout his entire ministry. As we immerse ourselves in the Gospels, we see this pattern repeated over and over and over again. This is who he is. But just below the surface, we see a picture of what Jesus has done for us. In a sense, we are the Samaritan woman. And then just below that level, we see this is an example of of what Jesus wants to do through us for the people he sent our way, whether we work at NMU or the hospital or Meyer. Jesus declared that his purpose, the reason the Father sent him, was to seek and save those who were turned away from God, those who were far from God, those who were pursuing their own plans and agenda. 
and there's a lot of rich material here. We could probably do a month-long series just on this chapter, but I want to I focus on three steps that Jesus took to fulfill his mission. Three steps Jesus took to fulfill his mission, and then by extension, these are three steps that we can take to join him in his work wherever God has placed us. So three steps Jesus took to fulfill his mission. The first step is this. Jesus crossed boundaries to meet people on their turf and on their terms. Jesus crossed boundaries to meet people on their turf and on their terms. Jesus, remember, the, the, the biggest boundary crossing of all. Jesus left the throne room of heaven as the agent of creation and stepped into our mess. And then when he got here, he continued to cross boundaries to step over barriers, just as he did in this story. So let, let's look at who this woman is. It's very revealing. The very first thing we learn about her is that she is a Samaritan. And John writes in verse 9 that Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. There's clearly bad blood here. And to understand why, we need a short history lesson. So if you give me two minutes, I can fill in some of this background. And it would, it'll also enlighten another story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. Remember if you've heard that. Um, so a little history lesson. We go back 600 years roughly before the time of Jesus. And at that point, the Hebrew people, God's chosen people, are in this endless cycle of rebellion and idol worship and tur turning their, their backs on their covenant with God. And he finally had enough. Uh, the Bible says the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love, and the people tested that all the time. And they finally pushed him too far, and he raised up the Babylonian army to conquer his own people for a period of time. So the Babylonians come in, they capture Jerusalem, they carry off the Jews into captivity in Babylon. But they leave just enough people behind to maintain the land so it isn't completely overrun by weeds and trees and wild animals. And then after 70 years, the exiles, the Jewish exiles, come back to their homeland to find that their cousins who'd stayed behind had disobeyed God and intermarried with the pagan tribes of the area. This is a, a clear, uh, clear disobedience of what God had said. And this mixed people group, now called the Samaritans, followed some of the religious law and teaching, but they also incorporated some pagan rituals. And when the Jews who returned saw what had happened, they banished the Samaritans from their area, they banned them from the temple. They said, you have no right to worship our God anymore. And that animosity started over 500 years before Jesus, and it was still going on in our scene today where Jesus parks himself on Jacob's well in the middle of Samaria. So that's all around. Uh, in, in fact, historians point out that during Jesus' lifetime, so within you know, 20 or 30 years prior to this moment, there was an incident when some Samaritans broke, Samaritans broke into 
the temple in Jerusalem and spread human bones throughout the temple complex just before the Passover celebration. So in, in the Jews' eyes, this defiled their temple and it prevented them from celebrating one of their most important festivals. So this hatred between Jews and Samaritans was still fresh. Jews and Samaritans did not interact. The woman knew this, Jesus knew this, but he was willing to cross that barrier because his message was that important. Another major shock for John's readers, and we see this in the reaction of the disciples, was the fact that Jesus was talking in public with a woman he was not related to. And this was a major serious taboo. Some Jewish teachers at the time uh, told men never to talk in public with any woman, even one's own wife. The cultural expectation was that men interacted with men and women with women. Uh, a Bible scholar I, I lean on a lot uh, is a guy named Kenneth Bailey. He lived in the Middle East for 40 years and taught and studied culture and languages. And he points out that the language used in this scene makes it clear that even the woman was, uh, even the woman recognized the impropriety of this moment. She could sense that this is not right here. Bailey uh, translated the entire uh, New Testament. His translation of verse 9 went like this. Why are you, a Jewish male, talking to me, a woman, a Samaritan woman? It was so unusual that Bailey sees a hint of scandal in her response. She seems to be asking, you're a man, I'm a woman, we're here alone, what exactly are you asking for? But Jesus walks past the innuendo, he walks past the awkwardness and the difficulty. Jesus was willing to cross a geographic boundary between Judea and Samaria. He was willing to initiate a conversation with a Samaritan, a, a member of a despised people group. And beyond that, he was willing to seek help from a woman in public. So what, what borders are we willing to cross for the mission of Jesus? As a church, uh, through the years, we have invited and welcomed students here, but also as a church, we've decided to send a contingent called Chi Alpha to their turf. And our, our physical presence there is following the example set by Jesus. And to bring this home uh, a little bit more, who are the people in your life who seem unreachable or untouchable? What are the boundaries that seem too difficult to cross? What are the groups that you have no desire to interact with? That might be where Jesus is asking us to step. I can't answer those questions for all of us, but, but I do know that when we ask God to show us where he wants us to go, he will reveal that to us. So point number one is Jesus crossed boundaries to meet people on their turf and on their terms. The second step is this. 
Jesus saw people for who they could become. When Samaritan society looked at this woman, what did they see? I think they saw her, her marital history. Somebody to, you know, they, they saw somebody to be avoided. Like, we really don't know much about uh, her, her history, but uh, we don't know if these five marriages ended in divorce or death or a combination of the two. If she had been divorced five times, that would raise serious questions in her society. If she'd been widowed five times, that would raise even more serious questions. <laughs> like, is this person a killer? Like, it's, it's probably some kind of combination uh, of the two, but whatever the circumstance, her neighbors would know. And they would see her as dangerous, as immoral, as bad, as somebody to be avoided, as an outcast. Another cultural clue helps us to understand this. John tells us that the woman went to the well alone at noon in the heat of the day. Like normally in this society, the women of the village would go to the well together, either early in the morning or just before sundown. They could go in the morning, get all the water they needed for the day. Uh, they could also uh, use this as a, as a social outlet. They could get together, see their, their friends and neighbors, sisters, cousins, have a chat. And the fact that this woman is coming alone at noon identifies her as a social outcast. She's either not welcome or uncomfortable being at the well with the other women from the village. But Jesus doesn't see her as an outcast. He doesn't see her as immoral or bad or dangerous. Jesus sees this woman for who she could become. And who does she become? We see it happen in our story. This woman becomes the first woman preacher in Christian history. She doesn't have a title. We don't call her reverend. She doesn't have an official role. We don't even know her name or age, but what does she do? She leaves her bucket next to the well and runs back to the village and says, come and meet this man who knows all about me. Could he possibly be the Messiah? How's that for an icebreaker? And John tells us that many came to believe in Jesus because of the steps that she took. When our society looks at college students, what does it see? I hear a lot of unflattering stereotypes. I see a lot of dismissive memes that I don't care to dignify by repeating. But here's what I see. I see a generation that could help usher in a new great awakening in America and around the world. In, in our movement in, in Chi Alpha, there have been prophetic messages that a great awakening is coming, and part of that will be a revival on our college campuses. So I see a generation that's passionate and energetic and wants to make the world a better place. And it's our job as the older generations to help direct their passion 
and energy to the things that have eternal value. It's our job to help Christian students realize that Jesus has placed them on their campus for a purpose. He wants to send them into their campus community with the same message the Samaritan woman carried into her neighborhood. Come and meet this man who knows me better than I do. Could he be the savior of the world? When I meet a student for the first time, I often tell myself that this person, this 18-year-old, could someday be my boss. Like, I don't know, but like someday this person could be my district director, or this person could someday be the national director of Chi Alpha. I don't know what God has in store for them or me. But what can I do today to help them become the person God has made them to be? So let, let's think about the people in our, in our own lives. Who could they become if they met Jesus and let him take control? So let's ask God to help us not become distracted by outward appearances or what we know about somebody's history, but to see people as he sees them. Jesus saw people for who they could become. And the third step in fulfilling his mission, Jesus called people to a new way of life. When, when he offered living water, Jesus was talking about spiritual life. Even though the woman didn't get that right away. Jesus is asking, what is it that satisfies you? What do you think will give you fulfillment and purpose? What are you living for? And this is the question we pose to students. Why are you here ultimately? Is it just so that you can earn a degree, so that you can get a specific job, so you can make a lot of money, so you can buy a nice truck and find the perfect spouse and build a great house and take amazing vacations? and do well in your career so you can have a great reputation, what ultimately are you living for? In his book, Encounters with Jesus, Timothy Keller writes, everybody has got to live for something. But Jesus is arguing that if he is not that thing, it will fail you. First, it will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, you will tell yourself that you have to have it or there is no tomorrow. That means that if anything threatens it, you will become inordinately scared. If anyone blocks it, you will become inordinately angry. And if you fail to achieve it, you will never be able to forgive yourself. But second, if you do achieve it, it will fail to deliver the fulfillment you expected. Jesus calls us to a new way of living in his family, with him at the center. Jesus says, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, then whatever you worship will abandon you in the end. He says, I alone can give you the living water. I am the living water that springs up into eternal life. As we wrap up this morning, I want to do a short exercise that we teach in Chi Alpha, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and stretch or do anything like that. It's, uh, it's called the grid of application. 
So we tell students, whenever you hear a sermon, whenever you read a passage of scripture or hear a Bible teaching on a podcast, you can pause and start to apply that truth immediately by asking four questions. And as I go through these questions, kind of process them yourself. The first question is this. Based on what I just heard, is there something I need to start believing? Did God just reveal some truth to me? The second question, based on what I just heard, is there something I need to stop believing? Did the Spirit of God just reveal to me that I've been believing a lie or an untruth? Number three, based on what I just heard, is there something I need to start doing? And four, based on what I just heard, is there something I need to stop doing? And when we ask these questions, we are inviting the Holy Spirit into our day, into our life, into our daily decision. We're asking him to speak to us, and when we do ask him that, he will reveal how to apply the truth we've just heard. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son to find us and chase us down when we were turned away from you, when we were walking in the opposite direction. Thank you for reaching us in our, our rebellion, in our indifference. We thank you for the invitation to join your family. We thank you that when you look at us, you don't see our our past sin, you don't see our past mistake or our shortcomings, but you see who you've created us to be. You see the potential and promise that you've placed within us. And we thank you for this great invitation to new life. We know that you're not just asking us to be better versions of ourselves, but you are calling us to become new creations. And we thank you for the ability to do that as we trust in Jesus, as we believe in him, we can inherit the eternal life that you've set for us. I pray for your people who are gathered here today. I pray for those who uh, are watching or who watched uh, online earlier today. I pray for your people around the world as, as we celebrate uh, the things that you've done for us as we celebrate your goodness and greatness. I pray that your people, as we go about our week, will sense your presence and sense your leading. We thank you for placing us where you have. And we know that you've not just left us to our, to our own abilities, but you give us strength through your spirit to do what you, you've asked us to do. So we thank you for this time that we've been able to gather together in your name and worship you and be reminded how great you are, how good you are, how loving you are, and that you have a plan and purpose for each one of us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.